be able to wire a mic, shouldn't he? <laughs> I'm really uh, happy to be here. As I was telling Rob Provost, I graduated, uh, my undergraduate work was at Trinity College in Chicago, which is a small Christian college, evangelical Christian college, so I feel right at home and maybe a little homesick for those uh, days back at Trinity uh, as I look around the campus and the student body here. Uh, I'd like to just share a little bit with you about uh, how I happened to be uh, invited by Rob to speak here. Rob was thinking about the subject of integrity and uh, he thought, why not an FBI agent? So he called the director of the FBI back in Washington. He said, uh, Mr. Director, I, I wonder if you would, uh, would send us to speak at the Master's College uh, the most intelligent FBI agent that you have in the entire FBI. Well, the director said, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, Rob, but uh, you see that guy's uh, caseload is, is so heavy and uh, we need him so much that we really can't spare the time. So Rob hung up a little bit disappointed, but he got to thinking. And he called the director back and he said, uh, uh, well, Mr. Director, you think you could send uh, the, the bravest, uh, most aggressive FBI agent that you have? Uh, and again, the director said, well, I'm sorry, but that agent's, uh, the demands on him are so great and his caseload is so, so uh, important that we really can't spare him to speak. So again, Rob hung up and uh, was disappointed. So he thought it over and he called back again and he said, Mr. Director, uh, do you think you could, could send us just the nicest FBI agent that you have? Well, after three calls, specifically asking for me, how could I turn him down? <laughs> I know what you're thinking, so much for this guy's integrity, right? <laughs> well, maybe to establish some credibility before I begin to uh, discuss integrity with you, let me, let me say this. Whether I have an opportunity to share in a small group or before a Sunday school class or the occasional opportunity that I have to come and speak to a larger group like this, I always want to share from my growing edge. That is, the things that I want to share with you are, are things that God is challenging me in my life about. So I'm not someone who's up here to say, here I am up here, come up where I am. I'm rather someone who says, let's come alongside one another and encourage one another. So I hope that uh, my remarks today are taken in that light. Chuck Swindoll wrote a little booklet entitled Integrity. It's probably over in your bookstore. Uh, he said in his introduction of this book, and I quote, Let's face it, people we can trust are hard to find. Ask any businessman and he'll tell you that good personnel is one of his greatest needs and rarest discoveries. The same is true in the political arena, or the church for that matter. Such terms as rip-off and phony and con artist are commonly used against a leader or some so-called public servant. What's missing? Integrity. We seldom even hear the term anymore. As a result, we are becoming increasingly more suspicious, less trusting, fearful of those who once received our full support. When Rob uh, asked me to come and speak during this series of chapels that will be focusing on integrity, I thought, sure, I can do that. Uh, because, well, after all, the FBI, well, the letters FBI stand for Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, they also reflect our motto, which is fidelity, bravery, and integrity. But in talking to Rob about his interest in exploring aspects of integrity, I realized that uh, he was concerned about a meaning for integrity that went beyond the meaning that our agency's motto uses the word integrity. Rob expressed his conviction to me that Christian integrity 
was an important key to effective Christian witness. Rob's comments caused me to uh, consider the meaning of integrity for the secular mind and also for the Christian mind. And in what ways does the secular perception of integrity differ from the integrity that a Christian should be aspiring to? When we think of uh, Chuck Swindoll's comments about uh, people we can trust being hard to find and about the suspicion and the lack of uh, confidence that we bring to our relationships, uh, we can certainly say that uh, people that we're going to put our trust in, we want them to be people who are are law-abiding. And for the most part, this is something that's measurable. Uh, Well, that is to say that we can take the civil law, place it up against someone's conduct, and see whether or not uh, they are meeting the requirements of the law or if they violated any element of the law. Uh, But if we as Christians are looking for a higher meaning for integrity, then we need a higher measure of integrity than the civil law. You see, the shortcomings of the civil law are really apparent when we see how differently the meaning, purpose, and the appropriate practice of the law is perceived by different people in positions of authority. This contrast in uh, perception uh, was really brought home to me in recent years during a training session I went to on drug investigations. Uh, During this session, there was uh, uh, one man who gave a presentation, and he was a gentleman who came from three different uh, positions in, uh, in, in within the uh, institutions of civil law. And each of these different positions had given him a different perspective uh, on civil law. Uh, he had spent a number of years as an FBI agent. He then went on and became a prosecutor in the United States Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. Uh, following that, uh, he uh, went into private practice and he now specializes in the defense of uh, drug cases. The purpose of his presentation was to give investigators like myself some insight into the kinds of mistakes that investigators make and that uh, a defense attorney is looking for so that he can build his case. And he provided some really thought-provoking insight into why cases are won and lost. But the thing that really stuck that he, uh, he presented was a little personal history or a little personal presentation of his view of the history of the legal profession and the evolution to what we have now of defense and prosecution attorneys. He said that really they have their origins in English tradition. And he said that back in old England, if someone accused someone of something, the accusor, the person doing the accusing, was wrapped up in chains and thrown into a lake. Now, if that person bobbed back up to the surface, then that was a sure sign from God that the accusations he made were accurate and that the accuser, the accused, was in fact guilty of the accusations. Well, you can imagine that this method kept the number of accusations to a minimum and maybe our course could use this to cut down on caseloads. Well, our speaker noted that, uh, that this method was finally realized as being a little less than practical and that it was replaced by dueling. This is where two individuals, the accuser and the accused, would uh, take the field of honor and with chosen weapons, they would duel it out to the death. And again, the idea being that God would see to it that the person who was truthful would be the person who would survive the duel. 
Still, it appears from uh, history that this method lost favor. Now, maybe this is because uh, uh, people began to lose faith in God's participation in their method, or maybe they just weren't willing to put their life on the line and search for the truth. But for whatever reason, they abandoned going into the duel themselves, and they started to hire champions to come in and champion their cause. And the champions would fight on, on, on behalf of the accuser and the accused. Again, they would often fight to the death, or later on it became a, a situation where they would fight to some uh, determined advantage. And, and again, the idea being that God would see to it that the, the champion who was on the side of truth would win. Our speaker noted that it's from this concept of champions uh, being uh, taking the, the uh, position of the accused or the accuser that the whole idea of prosecution and defense attorneys evolved into what we have today. And he said now that this, this contest that takes place takes place uh, among the most civilized of people with the most civilized of champions and the most civilized of atmosphere and the game is played by the most civilized of rules. In fact, he, he likened the game to a football game. And he said that, uh, that basically uh, each of the champions, the defense attorney or the prosecution attorney, is trying to move the ball up and down the field during this game we call a trial. And the goal is to, to move that ball as close to the goal that you want to reach, whether it's an acquittal or whether it's a guilty verdict, prior to the case going to the jury. So that that moment it goes to the jury, that ball is closer to your goal. Uh, the way that they move the ball is by presenting different facts and finding different elements, playing on people's emotions, uh, finding technicalities that, for instance, could uh, preclude certain evidence or certain testimony, uh, or any other way that they can get to move that ball down the field so that uh, uh, they can influence uh, the fans and the referees, uh, excuse me, the, the judge and the jury. Uh, winning the case involves getting that ball closest to the goal you want to accomplish. Well, what, what concerned me most about this presentation that it, was that it really did seem to explain the current state of, uh, of our legal system. Uh, yet, where was the overriding concern for seeking the truth? That bothered me. At least our ancestors, if we trust in their sincerity, were seeking the truth. Uh, albeit they were operating from a misguided conception of how that they could manipulate God to participate in their affairs. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me. I think our present legal system is the best in the world. I think it's the fairest, the most efficient uh, legal system in the entire world. And I'm proud to be part of the legal system. But when I consider the meaning of integrity for Christians, I see that the measure of the civil law and the methods of measuring by the civil law leave something to be desired. After all, even the highest court in the land uh, has a, an ongoing debate over whether or not the Constitution is a document that should stand as it is or whether it's a document that's in flux and should be changing to meet the changing circumstances of our age, granting new rights and redefining other rights. This battle's going on right in the Supreme Court. So you can see, if we choose to use the civil law uh, as our only measure of integrity, our only measure of integrity, it's not surprising uh, that uh, we find it, uh, find it uh, less than adequate. There's a term, and again, this is not surprising, there's a term, and you've all heard it, the term personal integrity. 
uh, and it seems to say that there is something beyond the civil law that, uh, that we measure integrity by. Uh, those are those things that, uh, that we, we do even though, uh, the things that we don't do, even though we know we can't get caught, personal integrity. Or where there's not even any civil law, we develop a personal integrity. And regardless of what the civil law says, we have our own moral code, our own personal integrity. Uh, perhaps when we talk about personal integrity, we're getting closer to what God has to say about integrity. Uh, because if the civil law can't be the only measure of integrity, if it's an inadequate measure, and especially for, for uh, Christians, then we need a higher authority. We want to know what the Word of God has to say about integrity. The word integrity appears in the Old Testament several times, but it really doesn't appear in the New Testament. Yet I hope that uh, my comments today will show that the concept of integrity is carried through into the New Testament and that it is a vital part of the good news that Jesus Christ proclaims. In the Old Testament, when we read the word integrity, uh, we surely sense a legal meaning to the word. Uh, when the Bible characterizes Job and other Old Testament men as men of integrity, uh, we understand that to mean that they were men who lived according to the law that God had revealed to them and according to the personal direction that God was giving them. Uh, by God's law, an absolute measure, they were found to be men of integrity. Not sinless. We look at their histories and we know that they're not sinless. But they were men whose primary concern was to obey God. Yet the real meaning of the Hebrew words translated integrity uh, has more than a legal meaning. The meaning is more in the sense we would say that a building has integrity. Uh, that is to say, the building has wholeness. You saw the definition on the slides, wholeness. That's the key concept of integrity in the Bible. Building has wholeness, and therefore the building won't fall down. The building was built on a sure foundation. It's built with the proper materials. It's built by proper methods. Therefore, the building will stand. This is the fuller meaning of, of integrity in Scripture. And this theme is carried from the Old Testament right into the New Testament. And this wholeness, as it applies to human and character, involves elements like uh, genuineness. You heard some of the students and faculty talking about some of these uh, elements. Genuineness, singleness of purpose, sincerity of motives, truthfulness, and uprightness. I would encourage you to read Chuck Swindoll's little booklet on integrity. In that book, he goes through events in the life of Daniel, and by Daniel's example, he shows how a life of integrity should be lived out. But today, I'd like us to take a look at uh, the idea of integrity as it's presented by Paul in one of his letters to the church at Corinth. Would you uh, turn to me, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. We're going to see that as Paul speaks, he speaks here directly to the issue of our integrity as Christians and how that it makes us effective witnesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 will begin at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? 
For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You'll recall that Paul had written earlier letters to the church at Corinth, letters in which he called them to to task for some serious sins and some uh, falling away from the original gospel that uh, Paul had presented to them. Uh, He waited anxiously for Titus to return from Corinth to tell him how the Corinthians had accepted his rebuke and how whether or not they were accepting his authority. And when Titus returned, when he met Titus, uh, Titus tells him that, yes, they've they've repented, they're turning back, uh, and they're accepting your authority. And Paul rejoices. And he rejoices over, over uh, this change of heart. And then he begins this, in this passage that we've looked at and on through uh, most of the rest of uh, 2 Corinthians to just describe to them what this Christian life is really all about that they're turning back to. He begins to really define the meaning of authentic Christianity. In the first verse that we read, Paul makes a very important statement about the integrity of our faith. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ. Now, at first glance, we might find that verse discouraging. Because when we examine ourselves, we often feel less than victorious. We've all had our ups and downs, right? Uh, Those times of doubts, uh, those times of willful disobedience. Or more often, just a lethargic indifference to our faith. And all these things cause us to be a bit cynical when we hear statements about always living triumphantly. But look more closely at what Paul has said here. He says, the triumph that God leads us in is not our triumph, our triumphant attitudes, our triumphant actions, but God's triumph in Christ. And what is God's triumph in Christ? Of course, it's Christ's death and resurrection. Now, there is a triumph we can always be led in. The triumph of Christ over sin is an always triumph. It is a triumph that saves us once for all. And it's also the triumph that we look to during times when we're really struggling. When we're down, when we're feeling less than victorious, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that remains and that we can't deny. And it's that that draws us back to a relationship with Christ. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is an always triumph. When we talk about the integrity of the Christian faith, no fact is more important to the reality of Christianity than the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. It's in Christ that we put our faith. He is the object of our faith, and He is faithful. When we think of faith, we think of faith often in terms of personal struggle. Uh, our struggle to believe and to surrender our wills to Christ. Uh, We also think of faith in terms of the assurances that we receive from God, the assurances in His Word, the assurances that we feel because the Holy Spirit indwells us. But faith begins with the object of our faith, and if we are going to be 
witnesses with integrity. We must never forget to communicate God's victory in Christ. If we are only lifestyle evangelists, if we sit back and expect people to find Christ by looking at our lives, they're never going to find Christ. They'll find us sometimes victorious. They'll maybe even find us most of the times victorious. But they're not going to find that always triumph until we point them to Christ. The practice of integrity for the Christian must include a clear, unashamed communication of who Christ is and what he's accomplished. As we continue in this passage, Paul speaks to another element of Christian integrity, an element closely tied to what we've just considered. Look at uh, again at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in its triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to, other, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? One of the realities of becoming a Christian is the fact that we become a new creature in Christ. And as new creatures, we impact the people that we come in contact with in a way that they can't deny or ignore. Paul likens it to an aroma. Uh, if a, if a nice-looking young lady walks into a room wearing an overdose of Chanel Number no. Five, it's she's kind of hard to ignore. The aroma is there, and you know it. Paul says that we as Christians also have an aroma that people cannot ignore. Comment, commentators suggest that the Corinthian reader probably would have pictured uh, a Roman general marching into Rome following a great victory. And as he marched into Rome, his procession would be led by captives who were clothed in fine clothes, were clean, and were carrying garlands of flowers and pots of incense to lead the way of the Roman general into the city. But there was another group of captives that came at the tail end of the procession. And this group of captives were in chains and rags, and they were filthy. These are the people that were condemned to death. The first group of people were the people who were going to be given a chance to live. They were going to be sent back to rule on behalf of Rome, to act as servants of Rome. They would live. The people at the end of the procession were going to be the people who were going to die. And those people at the end of the procession had a stench about them. And that stench was the stench of death. And when Paul speaks here of an aroma of life, an aroma of death, this picture probably came in to the, uh, to the minds of the Corinthian reader. Paul's saying that when we have integrity and we confront people with the claims of Christ, we have to realize that for some, they're going to smell the smell of death on us. And on others, they're going to smell the smell of life. Those who will accept Christ, those who are attracted to Christ, are going to smell life on us. But those who will perish, those who are rejecting Christ, will smell death on us. In our practice of Christian integrity, we need to be mindful of this. On the one hand, we have to accept that not all the people around us are going to be all that excited about our faith. Not all of our casual acquaintances that we come in contact with, not all of our close friends, and not all of our family are going to always rejoice in our faith. If we're communicating Christ to some, we're going to smell like the smell of death. It's a hard thing for us. We all want to be loved and accepted. We all want our loved ones to find Christ. But the danger is that 
we can so water down our testimony that our loved ones, our acquaintances and our friends will never have Christ revealed to them. When we witness with integrity, we must ex expect and accept rejection. But it's not all that harsh, the reality that Paul speaks of here, because he also says that on the other hand, there are going to be those people who find life and find Christ. And here's a good check and balance for us. If we're experiencing in our witness those people who are coming to Christ, this is a confirmation that our witness is true. And we need this check and balance. Uh, if we are not having people find Christ through our life and through our witness, then we need to think it through. We have to have the integrity to examine ourselves and see if maybe there's a problem. Maybe the problem is our message. Maybe our message is so watered down that someone can't see Christ. On the other hand, maybe our message has so much extra baggage that isn't part of the gospel that they can't get through the baggage and find Christ. Whatever the reason, we need to say, why is our witness not getting through? Because Paul says here, we're going to be able to see people find life in our witness. We need to have that type of, uh, type of uh, integrity to examine ourselves. We need to avoid something that you can see in Christianity all too often, and that's a sense where we just write people off. And you could take a passage like this and say, well, it's easy. See, some people are going to reject the message. So let's just write them off. They're rejecting the message. They're destined for death. They're hopeless people. Write them off, move on to the next, next person. Well, you don't see this kind of callous arrogance in Paul. Remember that Paul was the man who said he so wanted to see the Jews who had rejected Christ come to Christ that he was even willing, if it had been possible, to give up his own salvation so that the Jews could receive salvation. There's no callousness in Paul. Paul's message is a message laced with love. And when he talks about the fact that some people, when they're confronted with Christ, will smell death, he does it with a tear in his eye. We need to have that attitude in our witnessing. Christian integrity calls for a completely realistic approach to our relationships, a commitment to confront people with Christ, but a commitment motivated and molded by the love of Christ. Here's where lifestyle evangelism is important. Is our lifestyle communicating the love and the beauty that's found in Christ? Or do we present ourselves in such an unloving and unlovely way that people are distracted from Christ? We have to have this integrity to examine ourselves. And Paul speaks of this again in verse, seven, uh, verse 17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul encourages, encourages us to witness with sincerity. Sincerity of heart and motive are, are key elements of the wholeness that's suggested by the word integrity. As from God we speak in Christ, Paul says, his method is genuine, it's truthful, it's complete. Paul's integrity is, is evidenced by his motivation, his attitude of love, and the authenticity of his message. Paul reflects the wholeness of Christian integrity. And he says he lives this life of integrity in the sight of God. Paul doesn't kid himself about his ability to measure his own integrity, to discern his own integrity. His standard for integrity is God. He's in constant touch with God, examining his motives and his methods, so that he never becomes what he calls here a peddler of the Word of God, someone who goes through the motions, somebody who finds a gimmick, 
somebody who says, oh, the ends justify the means. No, he doesn't want to be a peddler of the Word of God. We need to have the, enough integrity that when we examine ourselves, we don't trust our own judgment, but examine ourselves against the Word of God and bathe our efforts in prayer so that we're sensitive to what God wants. When Christians examine themselves, their focus should be on God. Now, this sounds contradictory, but to the, to the Christian it's obvious and it's also liberating. Look with me at the beginning of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are a letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul even tells the Corinthians, don't focus on me to validate this message. Take a look at change lives. Take a look at the way your life has been changed. Just like my life has been changed, your life has been changed. An incomplete message, uh, a, a false message, would not have changed your life, Paul says. Look at the change in your life. Paul's confident of the integrity of his witness because of changed life. We can share Paul's confidence. Uh, we can see the changes in our personal life and that gives us confidence about the integrity of our faith. We can also see the changes that are occurring as people smell the sweet aroma of life and come to receive Christ through our witness. We can see these changed lives, and this gives us confidence. At first, the idea of integrity seems intimidating. Uh, we tend to start by considering it from a legalistic standpoint, and we feel we have to be sinless before we can say that we are people who have integrity. But in the biblical sense, wholeness is a gift from God. God reveals himself to us and we're changed. Uh, he gives us the sincerity of purpose. He gives us Christ's love in us to motivate us to serve God. He develops that genuineness, that truthfulness, and that uprightness. We're no longer intimidated by the idea of integrity. We're confident in Christ. Look at the next several verses. And such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. We're not adequate to confront the world with Christ. We're not adequate to accept the harsh reality that people are going to reject Christ. We're not adequate even to accept simple rejection of ourselves. We're not adequate to live sinless lives and say to people, look at our life and find Christ. We're not adequate. The adequacy of our faith, the integrity of our faith, is in the object of our faith. God is adequate. In God's message, there is complete integrity. In the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's power to change lives forever. Our integrity lies in recognizing this and rejoicing in the fact that God allows, allows us and invites us to participate with Him and to witness this power. I've met many different kinds of people with varying degrees of integrity over my 14 years in the FBI. I found everybody operates under some kind of moral code. While there are some people who I've run into who seem truly evil, still these are the same ones that have a honor among thieves or an inmate's code, some type of moral code. And this is a moral code that they're willing to die for. This is a moral code that they follow strictly. They have their own moral code. And they don't care about consequences to themselves. They will bravely and wholeheartedly adhere to their own personal moral code. And they display integrity within that system. 
in spite of the fact that the rest of society and even God tells them they're wrong. I've interviewed other people who really aren't all that bad, but somewhere along the line they made a mistake. This is often true in white-collar crime. At some point, someone takes a wrong turn, and that decision taints all that follows. And sometimes I can sit down with that person and talk about the events that followed the original mistake, and I have to say, hey, that all makes sense. That's all logical. And it's even ethical, everything you did after that mistake. But the fact is, the mistake remains, and it taints everything else. And it's like a house of cards, and it all falls down. The same is true regarding how men react to Jesus Christ. We can't make our own Jesus any more than an inmate can make his own moral code. We can't begin with uh, we can't begin to develop a Christianity without Jesus Christ. If we're to become Christians with integrity, we must be certain that our wholeness is built upon the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we also owe it to those to whom we're trying to birth into the Christian life to be certain that the integrity of their faith is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. I'd like to conclude today by telling you about a man I met in federal prison who displayed to me, demonstrated to me, the meaning of Christian integrity. It was several years ago that another agent who's a Christian uh, told me about a man who he had arranged to surrender to federal authorities after he'd escaped from prison. I had an opportunity to meet with this man inside prison after he returned to custody. I knew him as Ernesto, but he was given a, an alias because uh, the prison officials were afraid that there were contracts out on his, on his life that might be executed in prison because of some of his past activities. You see, Ernesto had run a major drug ring between Mexico and the United States for many years. Large quantities of drugs came back and forth across the border because of his ring. And by Ernesto's own admission, he had been responsible for arranging several murders of people who had crossed him in his drug business. Well, Ernesto was finally arrested and tried and sentenced on, on a drug charge. And he was sent to federal prison to serve his time. But he was well-connected and he's a savvy guy and he managed to escape and flee down into Mexico. And he remained a free man for several years. That is, until he became a bond servant of Christ. You see, his American counterpart in the drug ring had become a Christian. And this man began to travel down into Mexico and meet with Ernesto and to tell him about his changed life and to witness the reality of Jesus Christ, the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. And finally, Ernesto could no longer ignore the aroma of life that he smelled on his friend. And Ernesto made a commitment to Jesus Christ and became a Christian. Well, that's enough of a miracle for me to confirm the power of the message of the gospel. That a man as hard as Ernesto could become a Christian is enough of a message to me. But that's not, not all. There's more. Ernesto began to grow in Christ and he developed a burden for the souls in the jail in the town where he lived. They had no one to come and tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. Their only witness was an occasional visit by a priest who would hold mass. Ernesto began to visit the prison and God opened some doors with the prison officials so that he could get in and do some ministry. He began to lead men to Jesus Christ and he had a, a beautiful ministry in Mexico. So again, one might, right, might rejoice. Here's this wonderful miracle of a changed life and, and here's this tremendous ministry that Ernesto had developed. But Ernesto still had an unsettled manner, matter and he became convicted by a higher authority than the civil law. He realized that he had to go back 
and settle his score with society regarding his drug crimes. Although he was free and he was lovingly sharing Christ and in an area where no one else was working, he felt that he needed to go back and surrender himself to U.S. authorities and complete his sentence, including any penalties that there might be for escaping. Ernesto told me that he didn't feel that he could go with integrity to witness to the prisoners in jail when he knew that he belonged there, that he still had a debt to settle. And it would have been easy for Ernesto to rationalize away returning to jail. After all, he had the Lord's work to do in Mexico. And on top of this, his wife was pregnant and a child was due in just several months. He could have rationalized his way to uh, away his need to satisfy the civil law. He could have developed a whole personal rationale that said, Hey, I, I have to be with these men that I minister to. I have to be with my wife. But there was a higher integrity that uh, Ernesto couldn't ignore. God was telling him that he needed to go back, return to the United States, and set things straight. He knew, Ernesto knew that if he completed this obligation, that God was going to open up all kinds of new doors for him and his ministry. Ernesto arranged through his American friend to surrender to this FBI agent. In fact, on the day that he turned himself into federal prison, before he went to the prison, he went to this agent's church and gave his testimony. I valued very much my time with Ernesto. I needed that witness to the power of God's word because you can become very cynical when you're involved in law enforcement. It was difficult for me to spend time with him because uh, I was known in the prison as an FBI agent and uh, any indication of some kind of a relationship between Ernesto and I could have branded him a snitch, an informant, and could have sealed his death. I was able to visit him on two occasions and I was also able to bring in a fellow that works with Chuck Colson's prison fellowship, someone that could help him while he was in prison and could also work with him after he left prison and returned to Mexico to minister. On the occasions that I met with uh, Ernesto, he shared with me the blessings he was feeling with God because of the, dis the decision he had made. He was spending a great deal of time in the Word. He was gaining new insights into what it felt like to be a prisoner, to, to be frustrated because he couldn't accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish, to feel the loneliness, the separation from people he loved. He felt that now when he went back down into Mexico, there was going to be a whole new di dimension to his ministry with the prisoners in Mexico. And while he was at the federal prison in the U.S., he was having an effective ministry with some of the inmates there. He had no regrets, but there's also a reality to Ernesto's experience. He felt helpless uh, when the parole board refused an early parole and there was no chance at all that he was going to be able to be with his wife and new baby. He was lonely. He longed for more fellowship. He was frustrated because he was receiving letters from his wife in which she described problems that were occurring among the men that he had entrusted his ministry to in Mexico. Still, Ernesto was a man of integrity. He knew in whom he had put his faith, and it was clear for him that there was no looking back. Ernesto displayed that sincerity of heart, sincerity of desire, sincerity of motive, singleness of purpose, truthfulness, uprightness. They're the mark of one who's found wholeness in Christ. It didn't matter that there were times that he felt less than victorious. Those to, him he, to, to whom he spoke, including myself, knew clearly that the Christ who died and rose again was a Christ that lived in him and had changed him. His witness had integrity. When our integrity is founded in the person of Christ, we can say with Paul, 
In all things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, not even federal prison, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Because of this kind of assurance was the root of Paul's integrity, the root of Ernesto's integrity. They could say, and I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Would you bow for prayer with me?